inventors and their inventions. Welcome to Radio Cade, a podcast from the Cade Museum for Creativity and Invention in Gainesville, Florida. The museum is named after James Robert Cade, who invented Gatorade in 1965. My name is Richard Miles. We'll introduce you to inventors and the things that motivate them. We'll learn about their personal stories, how their inventions work, and how their ideas get from the laboratory to the marketplace. Our guest today on Radio Cade is Jeff Fitzsimmons, an inventor with a magnetic personality. And I mean that both literally and seriously, as the saying goes. Uh, Jeff is a professor of radiology at the University of Florida who invented radio frequency coil arrays for high field MRIs. Welcome to the show, Jeff. And did I get that description right? Yes, you did. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, all right. So I got it right only because I read it off a sheet of paper. Um, but I need you to explain uh, briefly. Uh, and in layman's turn, exactly what an RF coil array for MRIs means and what it does. Sure. So the best way to think about this is uh, if you've ever seen a television antenna or you've ever seen a radio tower or you've seen a cell tower or any of those devices, those are all radio frequency antennas. And the cell phone that you carry around with you has a very tiny radio frequency antenna built in. In fact, it has, a, it has a number of them built in. And of course, in the old days, your television set used to have an antenna, a radio frequency antenna on the, on the roof. So the antennas that we designed and built, the, and the reason they were unique, is that they were designed to pick up signals from parts of your body. And so they focused on your shoulder or your hand or wrist or your knee or your foot or your brain or your heart, uh, things like that. So these are custom designed radio frequency coil arrays that are essentially antenna arrays that are conformed to a particular body part. So they maximize the signal from that part and give you the best possible image. Okay, great explanation. I think I get it. Um, so these are obviously used uh, in, a, in a wide array of applications in hospital settings, right? So basically anytime you go in an MRI, mm -hmm. depending on, on what hurts or what ain't working, uh, there'll be some sort of coil array that will be uh, looking for signals from that part of the body. Is that That's right. about right? Okay. That's right. All right. So like many inventors, you started out in academia, um, and then you made the transition uh, through the commercialization of your research. Um, and that is a story that is not always successful. <laughs> in fact, I'm guessing by the numbers, it's probably, you know, uh, fails more often than it succeeds. Mm -hmm. Can you describe a little bit about, um, you know, what, what led you to that path? I guess what, what led you to the decision, first of all, that you had a technology that you thought had market potential? And then what was your thought process as you said, okay, I think this has market potential. Mm -hmm. Here's my to-do list for the next you know, year or two. Yeah. Do you remember that far back or oh, you yeah. push it out of your mind? Sure. Well, we, we had serial number three MR scanner in the country uh, here in the United States. Uh, and um, so that put us at the very leading edge of MR imaging. And we previously had a laboratory with small-scale animal imaging. So I had experience building devices and radio frequency antennas for animals like mice and rabbits and things like that. So when we scaled up to the human version, we immediately saw the opportunity to do this with humans. 
And I remember the first thing we did was look at the human spine because everybody's interested in their spinal cord and they're interested in the discs that are in their spine. And so we built an RF coil to image the spine and we put it into this large magnet system and we made images of the spine that were better than the ones that the manufacturer was making. So they started coming to me over a period of time and I was asked by companies like General Electric to make these things you know, for them, make them available. And my initial reaction was, no, we really didn't have the team or the wherewithal to do that kind of thing. I was really more interested in the research. Uh, so it took some time before the right people came along uh, that I was able to recruit to form the nexus of a company to tackle this problem. And, uh, but I would say, you know, the opportunity sort of came to us, to put it that way. You know. What year are we talking about? What's our time frame, Jeff? We're talking about the late uh, 1970s, early 1980s. And how was uh, MRI technology generally received or viewed by the medical community then? Was it seen as some kind of newfangled thing that wasn't really necessary, or was it immediately embraced by doctors? Yes, that's a good question. I, I have to give a lot of credit to radiologists because radiologists are technology adopters. They like new technology, they get excited about new technology, and they're not, I don't want to put down other professions or specialties, but because radiologists have this history of going from x-rays to ultrasound to computerized tomography to, you know, they, they have gone through any number of large technological shifts that have given them new information. And so they see it as a way to, to get more information from the human body without cutting you open. So we call this non-invasive imaging. And of course, magnetic resonance imaging was a great opportunity to do even more non-invasive imaging. So they were excited about it. They wanted it. So let me hazard a guess here. Were surgeons against this? I mean, did they, did they think it wasn't as good or uh, that you still needed to do surgery? Or what was their response initially? Um, yeah, I think most of the medical community took a wait and see approach. And the early scanners that were put out there, the images weren't very good. Uh, so we may have made an image of the spine, but it was kind of grainy and it wasn't particularly pretty. You couldn't see the you know, details that you might like. So there was a period of technical evolution that took a good three to five years just to get it to the point where a radiologist would say, oh, I know exactly what's happening at C4 or I know what's happening at L3. Uh, th that took some time and then even much longer to become what it is today. Today, the resolution of a modern MR scanner is astounding. I mean, it's, it's better than you can do by cutting your body open. <laughs> so, Jeff, you, um, I heard you talk earlier about uh, you know, there's a common perception out there as people develop new technologies or companies based on new technologies. Mm -hmm. the, the examples they're looking for are the Googles and the Facebooks and, mm -hmm. and, and sort of the big, big cash outs um, right. or the Snapchats or whatever we're talking about. And I think you think that's unrealistic, right? Yes. yes. <laughs> Tell us what is your view yes. on, you know, if, if you are serious about commercializing any technology, mm -hmm. how much time do you mentally need to devote to, to sticking with it before you can expect a good payday? Yeah, I, I, I think um, 
you know, people often talk in terms of, you know, three to five years and, you know, maybe they'll cash out and go home. And I think those kinds of time frames are really very, very unrealistic. Uh, it becomes more realistic when you start talking about 10 to 15 year time frames. And so people that are starting out, and, and look, I had several partners that helped me in this endeavor to, to begin with, and they basically work for free. And, and so you can anticipate several years of working for free, and then several more years of working for peanuts, and then several more years after that before you actually get paid. Uh, so, you know, you're looking at, a, at an endeavor that, in terms of actually returning a profit, a minimum of 10 years and more likely 15. That's, that's much more realistic. So uh, better up front to tell your mom you're going to be sleeping on her couch for a, a good long while. <laughs> right. Or if you borrow money from your parents to start the business, don't tell them they're going to get it back in three years. Right. Good, good advice. <laughs> All right. Let's, uh, uh, let's back up, uh, Jeff, and talk about sort of pre-success Jeff Fitzsimmons, maybe pre-career. Uh, what were you – and I ask this of all guests I think it's interesting. You know, what, where were you born? Where did you grow up? What were you mm -hmm. like as a kid? So um, I was born in Newark, New Jersey, which is neither here nor there in terms of the story. <laughs> we won't hold that but, against you. But they, my dad um, moved to Florida uh, when I was still quite young. And uh, he took a job at the, uh, eventually he had several jobs, but eventually ended up working for RCA at the Missile Test Center. So back then it was the, you know, the Ken it wasn't the Kennedy Space Center, it was the Patrick Air Force Base Missile Test Center because it was part of the Air Force. The Missile Test Center was the Air Force, basically. Uh, so RCA had a huge technical laboratory on the base and my dad worked there. And so I was introduced to computers and telecommunications and satellite communications and things like that when I was a kid. Uh, and one of my biggest thrills was going with my dad out to the range to see a missile fired. And we're talking now in the 60s, right? And so not everybody was going out there to see missiles fired. It was really not even known what they were doing on the Cape at that time. Um, but my father was also a radio so amateur. So this is just before the space program? Yes. Or it was uh, before like the late 50s, early 60s? Early 60s, yeah. Okay. Uh, and, and so my father was also a radio amateur. So he had in, the, in our back porch a complete radio station. And we had antennas going up to trees and various contraptions that were strung around the house. And uh, most of it's self-made. I mean, he designed and built his own radios. So I became a radio amateur when I was 12 years old. And that was a little premature for most radio amateurs. They usually wait till they're a little bit older. But I was very excited by that. My, my dad was a great teacher. And so I learned a great deal from him. And, uh, and so I guess, you know, that's really the genesis of my involvement in technology. It, was, it came from my father's example. Jeff, were you a good student in school? Um, you know, I, initially in, in grammar school, I probably wasn't, I didn't do that well grade-wise because I didn't have glasses. And uh, oftentimes I would write the wrong question down and have the right answer to the wrong question. <laughs> And that wasn't discovered till some time later that I was getting bad grades because I didn't have the question right. And because teachers would put things on the blackboard and I would just write down what I saw and sometimes I got the numbers mixed up. But after I got my glasses, my grades improved. <laughs> so, so I was a pretty good student and uh, uh, you know, I loved uh, science and technology and uh, that, was, uh, that would have absorbed me completely except I spent a lot of time at the beach surfing. So that kind of you know, put a damper on being too <laughs> academic. <laughs> 
so you say obviously stayed in Florida. Did you go to University of Florida as an undergraduate? Um, I, I did. I went to the University of Florida as an undergrad, and then um, I was uh, drafted. Uh, this was during the Vietnam conflict. Uh, so uh, I was taken away from all that for four years. I was in the Navy. And then when I came back, I went to uh, FIT and then later went back to the University of Florida. Tell us a little bit about your stint in the Navy. Where, uh, what kind of ship were you on and where, where was it? Well, um, again, I was very fortunate. I, I went to uh, Naval Communications Training Center in Corey Field, Florida. And there, because I knew the Morse code and I knew about radios and equipment, I very quickly mastered the, the program and they made me an instructor. And uh, so uh, as, a, as a night school instructor, I had a special card that said I could leave the base anytime I wanted to. And so I used to drive home on the weekends. You know, I'd drive to Melbourne, which is a huge drive from Melbourne to Pensacola, Florida. But anyway, I had a little bit of a sense of freedom going through the school. And then um, I went into the uh, Naval Communications section of the National Security Agency. So I basically was, a, a, you know, I did electronic espionage. So, and I can't tell you any more than that, I'd have to kill you. <laughs> <laughs> well, fascinating. Our stories intersect actually in a number of ways that you're not aware of. Jeff, one, I actually was a radio, uh, I got a third class radio license when I was 10. Oh, good. I took my exam in Tampa for <laughs> it. Out my out dad here. was a radio broadcaster. He insisted <laughs> I, I do it. I have a radio telephone <laughs> license, too. <laughs> I don't know I don't know why, but I remember taking a test in Tampa, and I, I passed. Um, I was also in the Army and the uh-huh. intelligence side, uh-huh. and my Navy is, my son is in the Navy in communications. So, Get out of here. Yeah, but, <laughs> That's awesome. The you know, only difference is I haven't had a very successful uh, company. It's, otherwise, <laughs> we're, the, we're the same person. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, Jeff, you are, you are a big success. Uh, in Gainesville, um, and certainly uh, not just Gainesville. And I know you get asked for advice a lot, mm-hmm. um, probably asked to, to young entrepreneurs or students or engineers or whatnot. Mm-hmm. Generally, what what are their questions and what mm-hmm. are your answers? Uh, mm-hmm. And and have those answers changed? Uh, you know, do you, you have a different take, say, on mm-hmm. the success of your company when it happened and the success, uh, you know, looking back, mm-hmm. if you change your mind on any of those things? Yeah. Well, I think the first thing people come to you for is money. I mean, nine times out of ten, whenever somebody finds me, they want they, they, they say they want technical advice and they want guidance and they want mentorship, but what they really want is money. <laughs> and an so, investment in their company. An investment in their company, right? And so I have to inform them that, you know, I have invested in, I do invest in startup companies, but there are a lot of, uh, you know, stipulations that go with that. And uh, first of all, you know, asking them a lot of questions about what, you know, what they can tell me about what they're doing. And, uh, and so, once again, uh, the typical inventor will come to me with some idea or some device which they think is the greatest thing since sliced bread and which they're convinced everybody in the planet is going to have to have one. And then we have to work through that illusion and try to pare it down to the people who actually might buy this thing and what they would pay for it and what the profit margins might be and all those nasty things that you have to consider. And so it turns out, in the long run, that the technology, and I tell this to people all the time, it, it's great to have a great idea. I love it. It's exciting. It's fun, you know, but it's not near enough. You know, it's just only the beginning. And so what they need more than anything is they need a small team, a core group of people 
who are dedicated to the mission, who understand the mission, they understand the technology, they understand the purpose of it, the broader implications of it, and they are willing to dedicate themselves to its future. And, and, uh, and so we were very blessed and very fortunate in that regard. I had two or three people working in my laboratory at the time on, on campus. And so when we formed our company, those people transitioned off to working for the company. Um, but you know, uh, I didn't have to recruit them because they were already graduate students and other people that were in my research group. Uh, so I sort of I sort of stole from my own research group and then hired people back into it, you know, over time. And and most uh, what I find is most successful technology groups, they grow like that. They they get people to move from one place to another to join a particular effort. Um, but but it can't really be about the money. And and this is another thing you know you can't tell people enough. Forget about the money. You know you're not going to see any real money for a very long time. So you have to be sustained on the mission and on your enthusiasm and and determination. And so the word persistence comes up a lot. You have to go at it and keep going at it and be persistent in the face of you know whatever the odds are. Uh, if you have any chance of success, you just have to be quite determined. So as you look at your portfolio of uh, you know investments that have sort of paid off and those mm-hmm. have not, have you been able to to spot a common denominator in terms of the quality of the CEO or the quality of the senior managers? I mean, set aside for a moment, um, you know, the idea itself, right? right. I, I presume right. you don't invest in ideas you think are bad, right? Right. So right. You probably That's thought right. they're all good. Sure. Um, sure. And and then let's set aside, you know, some regulatory hurdle yeah. that, that nobody could have predicted. Right. Is there something um, looking back on the successes you go, gosh, yeah. I think it was this factor? Yeah. Uh, yeah, we've done that retro analysis a lot. And I've also had the opportunity to look at, at dozens of companies over the past 10 or 15 years, apart from the one that I was intimately involved with. And and I oftentimes boiled it down to one word, and it's integrity. People have to have rock-solid integrity. If, if the people in the company can't be 100% honest with each other and can't tell each other to their face when they think they're wrong or they're right or they're indifferent, um, the company doesn't have much of a chance. It, it, you know, if there's some kind of gaming going on and someone's trying to uh, you know, BS somebody about what the value is or what, the, you know, what something does or doesn't do, it's doomed to failure at the beginning. So uh, more than anything, and I, I know this isn't an easy thing to assess, and I don't delude myself into thinking I know how to assess it exactly, but I do know that uh, individual integrity over, over time turns out to be one of the most important ingredients because that's where honesty comes from, that's where trust comes from, and if you can't build something on trust, uh, that's all the highly successful companies today, that's what they build their future on is trust. You know, if you can't get a large number of people to trust you, uh, you, you don't have a chance. And it, and it sounds like candor is, is one of those mm-hmm. as well. Because, I mean, Absolutely. what you're saying reminds me, and you probably read the book that uh, came out, what, like 10 years ago, Startup Nation, right, about right. Israel. And it talks about these fascinating examples inherent in Israeli culture, mm-hmm. one of them being the military, right, where you right. have these very flat hierarchies mm-hmm. and you have privates basically telling generals where they went wrong, right. something that you know yeah. you probably didn't see a lot right. of. I didn't in right. the U.S. military. Yeah. Right. But what that does is it... Uh, it, it speeds up that self-correction loop, mm-hmm. right? And that if you've got everybody in your company telling you 
bad idea. Yeah. <laughs> and you trust them, mm-hmm. uh, you're able to to either avoid or pull out of mistakes a lot faster. So it sounds like that's kind of a key ingredient. Absolutely. You know, because, look, everybody's going to make mistakes. That's a given. It, it, the real question is, my old boss, Clyde Williams, was a MD, PhD, a Rhodes Scholar, brilliant guy. He was the chairman of radiology for many years. And he'd say, Jeff, your job is to make mistakes faster. Figure it out, get over it, and move on, mm-hmm. right? Don't dwell on your mistakes. Don't invest in your mistakes. Don't wallow in your mistakes. You know, lay it on the table, look at it, go, yeah, yep. it was a mistake. <laughs> I made it. Right. <laughs> it's time to yeah. move on. But it's interesting. He didn't say deny the mistake. No. Or, or f- no. It's like confront yeah. it, confront them. but move it on. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and that's, that's key. The candor aspect of it is very important. And I relate that also to integrity. So, Jeff, I'm coming up with a business model now. I think what we're going to do is sort of bottle your advice, and, and we're going to go ahead and sell it uh, you know, on, on the yeah. website. Right, right. <laughs> people just, have done that. Just, yeah, people just have to wait 20 years for it to pay off. Right? That's, exactly. that, that'll be in the small print. Yeah. <laughs> you know, drink right. in 20 years. So, right. Jeff, thanks. It's been fascinating. Thanks for joining us on Radio Cade, and um, I look forward to having you and your great ideas back on the show. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I'm Richard Miles. Radio Cade would like to thank the following people for their help and support. Liz Gist of the Cade Museum for coordinating inventor interviews. Bob McPeak of Hartwood Soundstage in downtown Gainesville, Florida for recording, editing, and production of the podcasts and music theme. Tracy Collins for the composition and performance of the Radio Cade theme song featuring violinist Jacob Lawson. And special thanks to the Cade Museum for Creativity and Invention, located in Gainesville, Florida.